1882, the inventor Nikola Tesla was walking through a park in central Budapest, reciting poetry to his friend Antony Zighetti. And all of a sudden, as the sun was setting over the horizon, he had this eureka moment. It came to him in a flash. This is Chris Cooper, author of the book The Truth About Tesla. And he took a stick and turned to his friend Antony Zighetti and drew this diagram in the dirt with the stick. And that diagram became the foundation for all of the electrical motors that are running today. It's a good story, but several years later, the friend he was with that day, Anthony Zaghetti, denied having any memory of it. Zaghetti said the invention had actually taken years to make via several iterations with many different people involved. And absolutely, Nikola Tesla was an ingenious inventor and should get the credit for having put it all together. But he was very much a showman and created a uh, mythology around him himself, sort of embellished his inventions. Nikola Tesla, the inventor, and Elon Musk, the entrepreneur, have one thing very much in common, which is they're both showmen. What does it take for an idea to change the world? Maybe it starts with a light bulb moment, a sudden flash of insight. But having an idea and making a success of it in the wider world are very different things. It's the difference between invention and innovation. And the path from one to the other is rarely a straight line. I'm Tom Standage, and this is Game Changers. In this podcast series, we're looking at the people and stories behind world-changing ideas. Some of them you'll have heard of, some of them you won't. Sometimes it takes decades of work to create what looks like an overnight success. But telling these stories can illuminate how innovation really works in practice. And we're going to kick off this series by looking at the lithium-ion battery. In the past few years, electric cars have started to appear on streets around the world in large numbers. You've probably seen one. You may even own one. It's all quite a turnaround for a technology that was considered a joke for most of the past century and only used in obscure niches as golf carts or milk floats. But now electric cars are cool. So what changed the game? Ask a lot of people and they'll say it was this man. To anyone I've offended, I just want to say... I reinvented electric cars and I'm sending people to Mars in a rocket ship. (laughs) Did you think I was also going to be a chill, normal dude? (laughs) Elon Musk, the chief executive of Tesla Motors, appeared on Saturday Night Live earlier this year. Tesla Motors is not just the world's biggest maker of electric cars. It's worth more than the three next biggest car makers put together. But did Elon Musk really reinvent the electric car? He's undoubtedly a very smart guy, a great entrepreneur and an amazing showman. But when it comes to electric cars, it's the technology that powers them, the lithium-ion battery, that is the real game-changer. Elon was an essential, you know, person from the very beginning in the sense of he was our biggest investor, you know, our biggest supporter. Mark Tarpenning, along with Martin Eberhard, founded Tesla in 2003. Could we have done it without him? Um, probably, but it would have looked very different and it would have been harder. And, you know, that you can never run the experiment both ways. So he wants to be a founder, you know, whatever. But, uh, you know, I'm happy the way everything came out. At the time, nobody wanted to invest in electric cars. We had a slide deck, you know, to raise money. And on one of the slides, 
we showed all these quotes from the car industry saying electric cars could never happen. And the reason why was because the batteries weren't good enough, basically. Lead-acid batteries hadn't gotten better in 70 years, you know, which was true. But, you know, we would always say, you know, look at these quotes. These people don't know what they're talking about. The founders of Tesla knew that when it came to batteries, something had changed. Lithium-ion batteries are what makes electric vehicles possible. They're the enabling technology. People have been trying to make electric cars for more than a century. If you go back to the turn of the previous century, you know, the streets of Detroit and New York had more electric cars than they did cars using gasoline. Vijay Vethaswaran is my colleague who covers green technology for The Economist. And there was a famous race uh, in New York among different forms of automotive propulsion in which the automotive entrant using internal combustion engine did so badly that the audience shouted, get a horse, get a horse. And so there was a time it looked like electricity would be the fuel of the future. Ford and Edison probably had the strongest effort to make an electric car in their day, but it flopped. They could not get batteries to work. Edison had developed a battery that Ford was very insistent in using. And it turned out that the actual batteries that Edison came up with, nickel iron batteries, they were terrible. They had poor range. His engineers didn't want to use them, but Ford forced them to use this. And behind his back, they tried to substitute in heavier lead acid batteries, but they were too heavy and they had other problems. And in the end, it ended up in a squabbling match and they quietly killed the project. So what makes the lithium-ion battery a game-changer? It's almost hard to imagine where it isn't. (laughs) Linda Nazar is a professor of chemistry at the University of Waterloo, and she specialises in the chemistry of batteries. So without lithium-ion, we wouldn't have the devices that we part of our life today. Smartphones, electric wheelchairs, lawnmowers. They've literally changed the world of electrochemical energy storage, allowing us not just these little portable applications, but large-scale applications as well, like with electric vehicles. The battery gets its name from the charged lithium atoms, or ions, that move back and forth between two sort of chemical sandwiches, called the anode and the cathode, as the battery is charged and discharged. What happens inside a lithium-ion cell is actually fairly simple. So you might think of uh, two multi-level parking garages, one that is fully packed with cars and an adjacent one that's empty. So in this case, charging results in the cars being pushed uphill into the empty garage and a discharge, the cars run downhill and repopulate the other garage again. And that generates the current that then powers your device. But it took a while and a lot of trial and error for researchers to arrive at this elegant design. The two decades between 1970 and 1990 was when all of these two-dimensional materials, the intercalation chemistry, was really developed by many, many groups around the world. I think it's a beautiful example of many researchers spanning more than two decades involved in both the positive, the negative, the electrolyte development. The origin of this approach could be traced back to an obscure conference held in Italy in 1972. Uh, I'm in Grenoble, in the Alps. Within one hour, you are in the mountain, high in the mountains. The quality of life is uh, quite good. Michel Armand is a French scientist who was involved in the development of the lithium-ion battery. But it's a very polluted city, and the city itself is not very beautiful. Gripes about air pollution are what started this whole thing off. I started very young. 
I decided to work in batteries when I joined the Stanford University in 1970. That was a time when there was enormous pollution in California because of cars. The sunsets were bloody red from pollution. So I decided to try to prove that we could make an electric car. At this time, in 1970, that was utopian. Uh, I mean, people did not believe that there would be overnight an electric car. People were considering me as a kind of naive. Michel got to work developing new battery technology that he hoped could one day power vehicles. I've been involved in the conceptual development of an intercalation electrode. I mean, finding electrodes that would work with alkali metals, I mean, lithium and sodium. And these dates from 1972. I presented it in a conference at the same time, a very good, extraordinary, intelligent professor from Imperial College, Brian Steele. Brian Steele's work caught the attention of a scientist working in the oil industry. Brian Steele had the concept that Stan Whittingham developed when he joined Exxon. You got a place to get to. Exxon knows along the way. It's nice to hear somebody say, thanks for coming by today. The first person to build a rechargeable lithium-ion battery was Stanley Whittingham, a British scientist who was working for Exxon, an American oil giant. There was interest growing companies like Exxon in electric vehicles. So when I went to Exxon, I started working on energy areas and Exxon built up a corporate lab that was to expand their business out of petroleum and chemicals into energy in general. At that point, they had anticipated that oil production was going to peak about year 2000. So they had to expand beyond just oil. At the time, in the 1970s, there were rechargeable batteries based on lead-acid technology and there were lithium batteries, just like the ones that go in watches, but they couldn't be recharged. So what made the idea of a rechargeable lithium battery so attractive? Lithium is the lightest metal, so it gives you the highest energy density. It also gives you the highest voltage, so it has both those two advantages. Essentially, a lithium-based battery lets you pack more energy into less space and less weight than a lead-acid battery does. But building one turned out to be easier said than done. The problem was that as the battery charged and discharged, the lithium metal inside it ended up forming sharp, spiky structures called dendrites. And that's not good. Those things known as dendrites, they look sometimes like snowflakes. They will grow through your separator and then they short the battery out, and then that would give you thermal runaway and potentially fires. When we pull the cells apart to do post-mortems on them, they would then catch fire. The fire trucks came on site three times, and the challenge there is, now we're an oil company, the oil refinery is across the street, so they didn't want any fires anywhere near. Not working on things that might cause explosions is a fairly good rule of thumb for an oil company, so Exxon decided to move away from this research. But that wasn't the only reason. Times changed and they decided that any business that was under $100 million a year was probably not worth their management time, so they sold all the businesses. 
The lithium-ion battery had so far failed to set the world on fire. Actually, it had set the world on fire, just not in a good way. The next step in its development came when another scientist, John Goodenough, improved the cathode. Here's Stanley Whittingham again. So I worked on titanium disulfide as the cathode. An issue with titanium disulfide is it's about two and a half volts. You would like it to be higher. And what John Goodenough found was that lithium cobalt oxide that he was working on had the same structure. So he looked at that and that comes in at four volts. That allowed the battery to pack more power. But despite Goodenough's best efforts, the battery was still not yet, well, good enough. There was still the problem of those dendrites, the spikes of lithium that form at the anode, which can cause explosions. That problem was solved by Akira Yoshino, a Japanese researcher. The issue with the lithium anode are these dendrites. So what um, Akira Yoshino did He used graphite, and graphite reacts with lithium as it goes within the lattice and essentially eliminates most of the dendrites. So it's a safer battery. And the lithium-ion battery found in so many of our devices was born. And it was all down to teamwork. I did the initial concept of the reaction mechanism. John came up with a better cathode, and then Akira came up with an anode that was safe and would operate. And it was then really that Sony put in about 10 years' worth of development and engineering to make a commercially successful product. Sony Compact Disc Players. Your ears will tell you. It's not only what you play. It's what you play it on. Sony launched the first commercial lithium-ion battery in 1991. The company wanted powerful, compact, lightweight, rechargeable batteries to power consumer electronics devices like camcorders, cassette recorders, remember those, and portable computers, which were just starting to appear. But in the car industry in the 1990s, electric vehicles were still using the same lead-acid batteries that they had been almost a century earlier. But though the batteries were the same, other aspects of the design had been improved. In particular, General Motors made a bold attempt to build a practical and popular electric car, the EV1. The electric car is here. BJ Vathis Warren. So there was a fantastic cult phenomena that built up around the EV1. General Motors put out a limited number of these cars, uh, mostly in Southern California. Mark Tarpenning. It was exciting and new. It was super popular in California. Sunny places where it would be easier to recharge, where there is more of an environmental ethos. And it was very popular in that market. Now, their performance characteristics were, you know, by modern standards, you know, terrible. But it at least was a real electric car. The people who got it were uh, zealots. And yet, despite this, the EV1 ended up on the scrap heap. General Motors saw this as a technological dead end, and it created a problem for them, and that is... Because it was so green, it created an aura of expectations that the company should move in this direction and their engineers were simply not ready to move beyond the internal combustion engine. You know, 99.9% of cars they sold were not electric and they couldn't see a pathway to get to meaningful electric cars because the technology was, was not mature yet. And so they said, let's kill it. They literally destroyed them. When GM scrapped the EV1, uh, saying that basically there was really no demand, uh, you know, I mean, that was, pardon the pun, it was just shocking. 
For Tesla founder Mark Tarpenning, the scrapping of the EV1 in 1999 came as a disappointment, but it also provided inspiration to prove GM wrong about electric cars. When they quite famously cancelled the leases and pulled those cars back from dedicated, loving owners of those cars and crushed them in front of their customers, that certainly was motivating that, one, we... We would never do that to our customers, take products that that they love and crush them in front of them. But also, it showed that people were interested in electric cars, and we felt that because we could do a lot better, there would be a lot more demand. Meanwhile, two other electric car enthusiasts, Alan Cocconi and Tom Gage, had built an electric sports car at a small company called AC Propulsion, which had developed its own electric drive system. Tom Gage takes up the story. We wanted a showcase vehicle that would gather a lot of attention. Alan had the idea of building a custom sports car, which was the T0. And we built the first one of those uh, sometime around 1996, I believe it was, using lead-acid batteries. The total battery was weighed about 1,200 pounds, and the car itself weighed less than uh, 2,400, so the battery was half the weight of the car. The lead-acid batteries were heavy, but with so many of them, and AC Propulsion's drive system, the T0 could really move. Oh, it was very good. It would do 0 to 60 in about 4.1 seconds, I think we measured it. And we had a series of races against cars like Ferraris, Lamborghinis, and Porsches and the like. And it would always win those races, you know, just impromptu drag races. At the time, Tom Gage was aware that progress was being made in lithium-ion batteries. Around the mid-90s, even before the T0, I was invited to a a review of battery technology at BP. I think it was in London, actually. And uh, at the time, uh, the only lithium battery I was aware of was in the Nissan Ultra. And the battery was hugely expensive and, and didn't put out very much power, even though it had a lot of energy. But then small lithium-ion batteries, starting with Sony's, came onto the market for use in things like laptops and camcorders. The Sony TR55 is a revolutionary new camcorder. Alan had noticed that they were starting to be used in uh, remote control airplanes, which was a a hobby of his. And once we did the calculations, it turned out we needed about 6,800 cells in the T0 to basically provide what we thought would be appropriate. Yes, that's right. It turns out that if you stick 6,800 lithium-ion camcorder batteries together, you can use them to power a car. We simply glued the cells together, but you do have to connect them in a very specific way. We developed some special techniques, a special kind of soldering technique that that worked quite well. And the result was a remarkable improvement in performance. It turns out to be about four or five times better than lead acid. So if you have a a pound of batteries, you get four times as much energy with lithium ion compared to lead acid. We saved about 600 pounds, which was half the battery weight, and we got about four times more energy. The advances they made were truly game-changing. So why aren't AC Propulsion the company we think of when someone says electric car? The economist's Vijay Vethaswaran remembers visiting AC Propulsion around this time. I visited AC Propulsion's garage in Los Angeles and saw the T0, which is a handsome electric sports car. And they also had a rather clunky Scion, which is sort of a, a square vehicle, not very attractive at all, that... For some reason unknown to history, they made their bet that this chunky 
people mover was the one that people would want to buy rather than the very attractive sports car, the T0. And that vital miscalculation on the part of the geniuses at AC Propulsion opened the possibility for Martin Eberhard to pick up on the T0 as the inspiration for the Tesla Roadster. The new and improved T0 caught the eye of Martin Eberhard, a technology entrepreneur. And Martin, he really wanted a T0, and, and Alan and I had decided at that time that the way we were building them wasn't feasible. They were costing us about twice as much as we could sell them for. So a small company, that wasn't make sense proposition for us. And so as, as I recall, I think he actually did say this, uh, which was, if you want to build me a car, I'll make a company and build my own. So he, he started Tesla and one thing led to another. And, you know, they, they took the concept further than, uh, you know, maybe we thought it could go at the time. And so, inspired by the T0 and its thousands of lithium-ion batteries, Martin Eberhard and Mark Tarpenning founded Tesla in 2003 to commercialise AC Propulsion's technology. Mark Tarpenning. Well, AC Propulsion you know, at the time was the undisputed leader for hobbyist conversions. But, you know, they were a hobby shop. You know, their vision of electric cars was just very, very different than what what Martin and I thought about them. Mark and Martin had an existing startup working on ebook readers. Martin and I had started a company called Nuva Media, which made, uh, you know, electronic books, basically, like, like iPads, like super early iPads. We had been looking, specifically Martin had been looking Wanting to to buy an electric car, actually, not only was there nothing on the market really, but he was dismayed that they were using these terrible batteries. Mark and Martin were already using lithium-ion batteries in their ebook reader, so they recognised the potential for using them in a car. And that also meant they had a supplier. When we went to buy these cells, they were in lots of things. They were in, you know, camcorders at the time and cell phones to some degree and laptops. And we convinced our lithium-ion supplier, you know, which was a big Japanese company that didn't want to sell to us because they were scared about what we were doing, that their real market was a thousand times larger than they were guessing. So when you convince an executive that that multi-billion dollar industry they're selling into really could be a multi-trillion dollar industry, it gets their attention. We started Tesla in 2003, and startups by their nature are sort of the best and worst at the same time. You know, it's very manic depressive. There are days when you know you're going to rule the world, and then there are days you know it's the most ridiculous idea ever that you're doing. The actual big revelation to me, the moment that I knew this was going to really work, was the day that we got the first engineering prototypes which are the the vehicles with all of our electronics and everything in it, sort of production intent. And it was a real car. You know, you see that and you're like, wow, this is a great looking car. It's a car that I'd want to be in. It's a car I'd want to be seen in. This is going to be awesome. We started raising money in January of 2004 and came across Elon and pitched him down at SpaceX and he said yes you know he loved the idea he was a big believer in changing the energy equation of the planet so he was an investor and he was on our board and was you know incredibly supportive board member all the way I mean obviously he's still on the board he's now you know running the place which has been great uh, why does Tesla exist why why are we making electric cars uh, why does it matter um, it's because it's very important to accelerate the transition to sustainable transport 
It really, really, really is. So Elon Musk joined Tesla, providing funding and becoming the company's chairman. And Tesla began its wild ride from a scrappy startup to becoming the world's most valuable car maker. My first encounter with Elon Musk was about 15 years ago. An entrepreneur knew that I was interested in clean energy, and he said, you've got to meet this guy, Elon Musk. Vijay Vethaswaran. I said, well, he's doing uh, SpaceX, right? He said, yeah, but he's doing a lot more than that. And so uh, he took me to the Playboy Mansion in L.A. Sitting in the corner all by himself, bear in mind, this is midnight on a Saturday night, talking to nobody, seemingly deep in his thoughts, was a rather nerdy looking guy. And of course, it was Elon Musk. And over the next three, four hours, he had only one topic on his mind, and that was how he was going to revolutionize clean energy, space, and clean transport. And that's what he wanted to talk about. And you could see the passion in his eyes. I left thinking that this guy is either a visionary who will change the world, or he's completely delusional. And I think to some degree, both things are true. To be a, a really a revolutionary entrepreneur, you do need to have some degree of delusion because you have to believe that the world is not in its ideal state today and that you and you alone are the person that's going to bring about that transformation. Musk realized that even though the market for super fast electric cars was very small, he could use it to catalyze a larger shift in the industry. Vijay Vethaswaran. The road from the initial Tesla Roadster, which was a stroke of genius, of course, in that he went after an expensive vehicle that could subsidize his longer vision to get to mass market vehicles. I think getting the business model right was essential. And there were enough people willing to fork over 100 grand or 150 grand to buy early models of a very cool electric car that that worked very well. That, I think, was part of the success, is getting those early funds and getting people to put deposits early and so on. Musk outlined this plan in a blog post in 2006 entitled The Secret Tesla Motors Master Plan Just Between You and Me. He explained that the strategy of Tesla is to enter at the high end of the market, where customers are prepared to pay a premium, and then drive down market as fast as possible to higher unit volume and lower prices with each successive model. The Tesla Model S. Motor Trend's Car of the Year. A car that may lead other cars in no longer taking from the earth, but accepting from the sun. Now, it's a stretch to say that any Tesla model today is truly affordable, but they have been coming down in price. And just as important, Tesla has spurred other car makers to launch their own electric models. Ultimately, if there's going to be an electric vehicle revolution, which now is in the works, it could only work really by getting the incumbents, the big boys from the Volkswagens, from the General Motors and Ford, to get on board and to start taking this seriously. They did not take Tesla seriously or electric vehicles for years and years and years. In fact, they they ignored it. When people saw the T-Zero, it changed the way they thought about electric cars. And Tesla has done the same thing on a global scale, proving to the car industry that electric cars can be practical and popular. And that, in turn, was only possible because of lithium-ion batteries. This year's prize is about a rechargeable world. John B. Goodenough, M. Stanley Whittingham and Akira Yoshino for the development of lithium-ion batteries. 
In 2019, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to Stanley Whittingham, John Goodenough and Akira Yoshino for their work on the development of lithium-ion batteries. The prize committee declared that this lightweight, rechargeable and powerful battery is now used in everything from mobile phones to laptops and electric vehicles. Lithium-ion batteries have revolutionised our lives since they first entered the market in 1991. They've laid the foundation of a wireless, fossil-fuel-free society and are of the greatest benefit to mankind. It was a proud moment for Stanley Whittingham. It feels great, it now. It's an accomplishment, any invention to come to fruition. These teams of workers, and at Exxon we had, I think, seven people in our research team, each had a different background. And you need those backgrounds to solve the various problems. If you come up with something new, others will find a great use for it and expand it beyond your dreams. And it's doing good for the world now. I think we can get a greener climate. We can help solve some of the climate issues. We could never have dreamed of what has actually happened now. So the whole world has really changed. In the next episode, we'll be looking at another collaborative innovation, the use of molecules of messenger RNA to make drugs, and in particular, coronavirus vaccines. As with the lithium-ion battery, what looks like a sudden recent breakthrough is in fact the result of research that dates back to the 1970s, with contributions from different people over many decades. It's really been a tremendous team effort of knocking down obstacle after obstacle. We called it modified mRNA, mod RNA. It takes a lot of money, a lot of smart people. In fact, the company that I founded, Moderna, that's where the name comes from. It's Thomas Edison's point about 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. You can hear the full story on the next episode of Game Changers. Thanks for listening to this episode. It was a Tempo and Talker production for Economist Radio. The producer was Tom Pooley and the executive producer was Sandra Schmueli. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist. Economist.